This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor of History Emeritus at Exeter University. He is also a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute in Philadelphia. He is, in the words of Reed Browning, quote, the most prolific historical scholar of our age, unquote, having written well over 100 books. And today we are speaking about one of his most recent books, The World of James Bond, The Lives and Times of 007. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor Black, why did you write this book? Well, I've always been interested in James Bond, but that wasn't why I wrote the book. The reason I wrote the book is that I often write in trilogies, and... um, I wrote in the mid-90s a book called uh, Maps and Politics, which was a study of how politics is presented through maps. I wrote a book called Maps and History, which is a study of how at any one time people have uh, have mapped earlier periods. And I decided I would write a third work, which would not be a book, but would be a long essay. And that was going to be on the image of the world and in and um, generally as a glo- uh, sorry, the image of the world generally on the globe as a target um, in the James Bond films. And so I started um, sort of thinking about it, and I realized there wasn't a book that really treated the plots seriously and looked at how changes in the plots engaged with the changing world in which Britain was. Um, So I wrote a book, and that was called The Politics of James Bond. And then, um, you know, after many years... Um, I thought I would rewrite it, look at it again, and then I wrote The World of James Bond. Um, And I've also given a lot of lectures on the topic, and I found people are interested, because if you can locate Bond in particular at a certain period of the Cold War and discuss that period through the uh, focus of the novels and then the films, you have a very interesting take on the 1950s and then 60s, and then you can, as it were, take that forward to the present day. Uh, In that case, what would you say is the thesis of your book? Well, the thesis of the book is that the um, novels and the films provide us with a way to look at Britain's changing position and also changing norms um, in personal behavior, whether it's uh, relations between men and women, 
attitudes to violence and so on. So politics is both in the narrower sense and politics in the broader sense. Please try to explain to someone like myself, a, a reasonably well-educated, well-read, for lack of a better expression, bourgeois gentleman of the old school with old-fashioned taste, why all of the negative stereotypes that I carry around in my head of the novels of Ian Fleming are, in fact, incorrect? Well, I'm sure that um, nobody is going to say that they are literature on a comparison that would get you, say, a Nobel Prize. But in, in many senses, they are a reasonably effective adventure fiction. The novels are much better than the films. And the best of the novels, I would actually have Moonraker as the best, is tightly constructed, uh, sticks to a very close timetable, um, and has not, by that stage, Fleming had not yet become stereotypical. Um, in a way, if you're interested in the development of adventure fiction as a type of literature, and that is what the James Bond stories really are, they're not very much about, as it were, um, the world of espionage in terms of its boredom, its repetitive character, etc., uh, etc. Et but if you're interested in that aspect of it, um, they represent a, a flavor of the 1950s, which is more interesting, more global in some respects than the novels written immediately after World War One, for example, the Sapper novels or um, John Buchan's uh, novels of the 1920s. So I found them interesting. Um, I wouldn't say that uh, they're the greatest of literature, but I would certainly say the novels are more approachable and more worthy of having a look at a second time than some of the more recent films, which are apt to be sprawling, uh, lacking in wit or humour or really characterization and overly violent. In a lecture that you did a few years back in Manhattan at uh, the military... Um, uh, institute, um, which a very valuable institution, by the way, which gives a uh, very good series of lectures uh, by authors of uh, interesting topics in military and strategic history. You appear to make much of the fact that Fleming was, or could made, could be made out to be, a cuckold. However, was that not a common lot of that period of time? I'm thinking of. Uh, fellow members, if you wish to put in those terms, club, like uh, Sir Anthony Eden, Howard Macmillan, Selwyn Lloyd, uh, Lord Kilmer, Lord Hailsham, among others? Oh, yes, Mountbatten. Yeah, no. Um, well, the reason I was looking at it was I was, I thought that was one of the three reasons why that you might have got a sort of decline in the quality of writing and a darker mood in the later of the novel. Uh, I suggested, first of all, the possibility of his private life, uh, his relationship with Lady Anne. Second of all, that he, his health was deteriorating. He was smoking and drinking far too much, eating too many rich food. He had a heart attack. None of that did him any good and because he dies young. And the other reason I suggested was the decline of Britain, the um, very recognizable failure of the to his uh, intervention in 1956, the subsequent so-called bolt from empire between 1957 and 1963, and a sense that a country that 
you know, that it, as it were, had had a, an optimism earlier in the 50s with the so-called new Elizabethan age, beginning in 1952 with the accession of Elizabeth II, uh, that that had run out very quickly. And all I was trying to do was to draw attention to the fact that for a historian, it's very difficult. And, you know, I'd written biographies of a number of people. It's very difficult because all too often biographers seek to argue one factor, which tends to be the factor that interests them, what a surprise. Um, and they claim this is the definitive way to, to approach a character. And I, I thought that with Fleming, whom the sources are good, um, it was actually very interesting that, you know, you could deduce three reasons and it's very, very difficult to determine which one uh, or which combination of those three or, or produces one that you could regard as the most important. So, no, I don't think the fact that he is a cuckold is per se the key to understanding him. And of course, he himself was not exactly uh, a, a non-player in the field of uh, sexual relationships. Um, but I do think it's interesting towards the sort of darkening mood of, of his writing in his later novels. Can you tell the audience a little bit about uh, Fleming and uh, why he started this book series? Um, yes, uh, Ian Fleming was born in 1908. He was born at great affluence. His father, a conservative member of parliament, um, life rather fell to pieces in World War One. His father got killed fighting in the war. His mother didn't take uh, this very well. Um, after the war, he um, went through um, the later stages of the conventional education of the British elite, went to Eton, didn't go to university. That was quite commonplace at the period. And he tried to um, find himself a role, tried out the army that didn't work, tried out journalism that didn't work, was finally prevailed upon to go into the city, uh, the financial sector, in order in part to look after his family's assets. Like a lot of people, World War II gave him something to do. Uh, in his case, he would rather have been at the cutting edge, as it were, but he becomes the assistant to the head of naval intelligence, becomes very interested in the intelligence world. After 1945, he goes into journalism at sort of executive level for the Sunday Times, uh, and during that period maintains his links uh, with aspects of the intelligence world. Um, he has a very expensive wife and, uh, and is also faced with the very high tax rates of the Labour governments after the war, and he sets out to write in order to earn money. And I think that's important because all too often people who look at writers sort of scorn those who write to earn money and sort of put their preference on those who, as it were, follow a um, more a sort of capital R, R romantic or individual line. I mean, this is just ridiculous. I mean, most people who are writers have been concerned about their financial um, sort of background, whether you're looking at Shakespeare or Trollope. And, uh, and uh, Fleming is no different. He finds what is a very... Um, successful forte and sticks to it. Though he did write other things as well. Uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang um, is something that uh, was a story he uh, dreamt up. He writes some very good travel journalism, uh, writes some pieces for Playboy, um, and he dies young, 1964, uh, playing golf, uh, has a heart attack. Um, and I think uh, by then 
he had succeeded in his objective, which was to earn even more money because James Bond, his character that he had originally deployed, in large part hoping to get into Hollywood. In fact, in 1962, there is the first full-length feature film, which is Dr. No. And although this isn't one of the great studios as he had initially hoped, it does in fact prove a very lucrative uh, film franchise. How much of the real Cold War of the early to mid-1950s is reflected in the Bond uh, novels? Um, Well, I think, first of all, there's the sense of menace, uh, the sense that things may change at any moment. And he's writing the first one when Joseph Stalin is still running the Soviet Union, uh, when the Soviets are indeed um, poised to attack, um, Korean War is on. um, And at that stage, the very first plot, the first novel, which is Casino Royale, published in 1953, relates to um, real-life concerns about the ability of the Soviets to use subversion in order to advance their interests with communist trade unions in Western Europe in the event of attack. The second uh, uh, novel, um, you switch to New York, and of course there is the, the description about the anxiety there about the prospect of um, a nuclear attack by the Soviets because they're now both sides have the nuclear bomb. And on top of that, in language very much reminiscent of J. Edgar Hoover, who uh, Fleming knew, um, there is the suggestion that uh, black power will be used by the Soviets as a way to um, undermine the United States. So yes, I think it's fair to say that in the early novels, there is quite a sense of the Cold War. And in, in for example, from Russia with Love, real live um, Soviet intelligence operatives are introduced by name. Uh, this all changes in the later novels. You have totally fantastical Spectre and Ernst Ambrose Blofeld, which has no basis in, in the world at all. And I think that's part of the quality of the imagination collapsing um, and the writing deteriorating. Uh, but the early novels, yes, I think there, there's a crispness there and a sense of immediacy that is really rather rather um, engaging. Uh, how um, did the Bond character evolve in the novel sequence? In the novel sequence, the thing that is most striking to a modern reader is that the character essentially breaks down. And indeed, um, in the last novel, last full-length novel, Man with the Golden Gun, uh, he tries at the outset to kill M uh, because he'd been turned by the Soviets and he's had, in effect, an over, uh, a mental breakdown. Now, this is very different to the Bond of the films. It's a far more edgy character in the novels and the edginess and the sense of strain becomes more pronounced. During during the novels, that I would say is the major change that you notice, and it makes it brings him out a slightly dark character, and that darkness was possibly, in the introspection, was possibly best captured among the screen presentations by Timothy Dalton, um, who actually was able to portray Bond more as a three-dimensional character than um, most of the other uh, screen portrayals. How popular were the Fleming novels in the 1950s in the UK as well as uh, outside of the UK? 
The novels in the 1950s were successful, more successful than had been anticipated. Print runs increased, and uh, they did well. And on top of that, Fleming, um, the popularity of Bond was such that Fleming was invited to do a sort of uh, a strip cartoon for the Daily Express, then the highest circulation newspaper in the UK, about the adventures of James Bond, and he did do so. Um, so Bond was very successful, but what frustrated him was the difficulty of getting it into film. Uh, Casino Royale was, in fact, filmed in 1954 as a one-hour CBS special, and um, sort of black and white, um, and, you know, I mean, it was Americanized. James Bond becomes Jimmy Bond, who's an American. There's nothing wrong with it, but that was it. It didn't actually gain any traction. And both in Britain, where Fleming felt let down by Alexander Corder, and in the States, where people like Hitchcock were much more willing to run with, say, Cary Grant and North by Northwest and things like that, Fleming was very much not being successful. And it's quite interesting that um, when he um, eventually produces, uh, a, you know, when he eventually produces a film contract, as it were, with uh, Saltzman and Broccoli, they're very much second division, and it's not what he would have wanted. Did not President Kennedy read and enjoy the Fleming Bond novels? President Kennedy very much enjoyed uh, them and was. He cited them as some of his favorite novels. He had Fleming to stay with him in the White House during the Day of Pigs episode. Robert Kennedy famously remarked that it's a pity that the Americans didn't have um, somebody like James Bond working for them, which was a classic example of overrunning <laughs> fact and fiction. And, I mean, there was a kind of, in the early 60s, American moment. I mean, Fleming was also writing for Playboy, which was very much an iconic early 1960s um, uh, product. And, of course, in the films, the only ones that are filmed are very much, with the exception of Russia with Love, are very much films where the plots are taken in order to emphasize the challenge to the United States. So the first film is Dr. No in which it's American missile tests from, uh, that are being that are under threat. Um, in Goldfinger, it's the American uh, reserves, gold reserves at Fort Knox. In Thunderball, the villain is planning to um, detonate a nuclear device at uh, Miami. So that in many senses, James Bond takes on his logic, not a defender of the British Empire, but as a defender of the West, where America is the key, key position and the job of Britain is to, is to help it. And the other things that are very noticeable is that the early 1960s, of course, the American engagement in Southeast Asia, first Laos and Vietnam is growing. And you, in Dr. No, the villain is presented uh, as in the story as Chinese. Uh, he has in the background men in male suits. In Goldfinger, the atom bomb is provided not as in the novel by the Soviets, uh, but by the Chinese. Dr. Ling is there. Um, and this, I think, is very, very instructive as the way in which Bond proves ultimately ult uh, very flexible, which, of course, is why um, he translates so well uh, to film, because far from being retained as a character trapped in the British class system, as in the sort of lengthy description, for example, at the beginning of Moonraker about a, you know, a, a card session in a London club. 
um, instead of being trapped in that uh, in that world, he uh, instead is moved to somebody who is mid-Atlantic in his accent, who is very much at home in the United States. Um, you see, for example, in Diamonds of Forever, 1971, uh, the villain Blofeld, brilliantly played by Charles Gray, has taken over the equivalent of the Howard Hughes empire. And when he captures James Bond, says to the second time, says to Bond, you know, what on earth are you doing here? I'm not even threatening your ridiculous little uh, country. And indeed, um, the the threat is shown from um, from Blofeld. He has a sort of um, sort of space mounted uh, laser gun, and the threat is shown as as being made to America. And indeed, Blofeld is about to blow up Washington, um, but also the other powers that are similarly threatened to the Soviet Union and China. So Britain has very much dropped off. Um, and I think that that is part and parcel of the malleability of Bond. And you can see that in the present day. Now, um, a lot of the audience are people for whom English is not their first language. And therefore, in common with actually, of course, a lot of products made for uh, Anglophone uh, consumers, there is an emphasis on violence rather than character and on fighting rather than dialogue, which is very different to the position in the early films or indeed in the novels. In the novels, he doesn't kill very many people. Which of the post-Fleming novels do you think the most of? The novels, I think Colonel Sun, which came out in 1968, uh, which was written by Robert Markham. Robert Markham pseudonym for Kingsley Amos, who was a great fan of the Fleming corpus. He'd helped to finish off Man with the Golden Gun when Fleming died. He'd written a compendia to James Bond. And it's a a good piece of writing. Um, It also captures an aspect of Fleming, which is a sort of sense of despair about how Britain is changing. That's very much noticeable there. And in that respect, uh, Amos very much was writing in the same kind of mental world as Fleming. But also it captures a sort of geopolitical uh, novelty because the villain is not Soviet. Uh, The villain is Chinese and working for the Chinese government, a Chinese officer, and hoping to cause war between the other powers so that China China will benefit. And that, again, is is interesting that that Amos should have uh, uh, jumped forward. Now, as you may know, the... um, there were then set writers who wrote a lot of the books, uh, the James Bond books in the 1980s and 90s. One of them, indeed, an American, Raymond Benson, writing at the end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s. And since then, there have been a number of writers, Sebastian Fawkes, Anthony Horowitz, William Boyd, well-known writers who have been brought in to do James Bond books. And, um, you know, people are up to, uh, can make their own views. My own comment would be like a lot of novels of this type they would be better if they were shorter um, and I think what people have lost is the tautness of writing I think I find that a real problem with a lot of modern fiction I'm not just thinking of this type of fiction I mean you know you could probably kill somebody if you dropped a Louis Mantel book on their head um, <laughs> the, the too many modern novels and too many modern novels are too long and I put that down to the lack of proactive editing and also the sense that people had in the past that you should be able to read a novel in a day or read a novel in an evening. Uh, and that is often gone. Um, and I think it's a great pity there. And I think it's also because 
the ability to etch character, which is, I think, one of the most important things as we discuss others, as we discuss ourselves, as we, as whether we, whether we do it in disguise, in, in speech or in writing. That character, that ability, seems to have been uh, been been lost to a considerable extent. Uh, can you expand a bit on what you refer to in the book as the Americanization of Bond? Yes. I mean, I think the Americanization is in part what I saw when it was moved to the film stage in the 1960s. And I think Bond by that stage is, has become very American. And it's very interesting that uh, Fleming wanted the screen Bond to be David Niven, who was classically... British public school, he'd been to Stone, not to Eton, but very much British public school and uh, of a certain type. And Broccoli and Saltzman produced a sort of mid-Atlantic character without a voice marinated in the British class structure, and that was uh, Sean Connery. And that was a, a character much better attuned to the American market, and I think successfully so. And what was interesting about James Bond is James Bond goes as, as it were, as British as the Americans would have liked it, but no further. And he is also helped in, as a commodity because whereas in the early 60s, it was very much an American moment in the world, Kennedy administration for good and ill. The later 60s, the international reputation of America is um, compromised by Vietnam. Um, and what that does is put a situation where you wouldn't want your leading um, agent if you're trying to sell a film, let's say, in Italy or in France or West Germany, all of which were major markets for the Bond films, to have been an American. So in that respect, Britain being a weaker power actually makes it easier to have a British secret agent as a global product. Um, and I think that, that so you get a, 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 an Americanized British product, and I think that's quite interesting. Uh, the, I mean, obviously, there is also, though, a complete air of unreality. I mean, if you're looking at a novel from that period and then the films afterwards, which better summarize the nature of British intelligence, you can think of Lynn Dayton's Ipcris file with Harry Palmer, played by Michael Caine in which you have people that are short of money, in which you have treason within the service, in which the height of high living is to have real coffee, um, and which people drive around in relatively miserable cars. I mean, this is very much more accurate, but of course it's no accident that the Ipcris file does not work so well in the United States. Um, so I think that... Um, and no more than, than does John McCarry, where, again, the theme of betrayal within the service is not one which is an attractive one, to put it mildly, uh, and attractive as a commodity, I mean. Um, so I think that there are these subtle changes in what are judged to be appropriate. But at the same time, one has to be careful. One, if one's talking about British or American, these are diverse cultures with many views and many consumers. Uh, isn't it the case that uh, Fleming was, uh, for lack of a better expression, negatively impressed by the choice of Sean Connery? Yes. I mean, Fleming did not like him. Fleming was very critical about um, the films. I mean, I think it's fair to say that by that stage of his life, he is, he is suffering badly from a combination of despair and ennui and is inclined to loathe just about everything. Um, 
Um, but yes, he didn't like John Connery, and he didn't like the way in which Britain was changing. I mean, it's very interesting, this. I mean, I was watching on the television last night the Young Vic production of Tennessee Williams' is, uh, a Streetcar, Streetcar Named Desire, and I was thinking about the parallel with the, as it were, the former Southern elite in the United States, as depicted by Williams or Faulkner and the way their world was changing and the way in which, to a considerable extent, you have a similar change in Britain. Now, some members of the elite managed to finesse themselves very nicely into the new world of, uh, of popular culture in the 1960s, um, but Connery wasn't, sorry, not Connery, but Fleming wasn't going in that direction. Uh, why do you think that the Bond films, as opposed to the novels, were so successful, so spectacularly successful, I should say, and in particular, why in the United States? Well, I think that's very interesting. I think they are adventure films that seemed to have a sense of daring. I mean, I think, first of all, the embrace of sexuality is important. These are women who are not confined or constrained by interest in matrimony or motherhood. I think that was very interesting. The novels represent, show you how far, how stupid people are who say that the 1960s saw a break from a sort of unchanging Victorian culture. The 1950s was already a period of quite considerable change. So I think that's helped to explain the interests of the 1950s. As far as the 1960s are concerned, you begin, in a way, looking backwards. So the very first scene uh, where James Bond is introduced, he's wearing a black tie. He's tuxedo in American. He, he's um, sitting in a uh, in a casino in London where everybody is looking as if they would have been stuck in some film from the 1930s. And yet that rapidly changes. And of course, it's pushed to change even further. I mean, the real breakthrough is Goldfinger with the fast cars, the glamorous women, the glamorous setting, uh, and the, you know, the whole thing. I mean, this was re a real glamour account um, with an edge of violence which made it exciting. And I think that very much captured a, um, a sort of sensibility which existed at that time. I mean, what is interesting is the subsequent ability of the scriptwriters and the directors and producers to jump through hoops in order to keep the product, and it is a product, it is a lucrative franchise, to keep the product attractive to a large audience. And that is what is interesting, because so often you can make a film and make maybe one, two, even three films successfully, but then the franchise you know, dips. And, you know, we're, I mean, what we're talking about now is, depending upon which, which year you're in, either the most successful film franchise in history or the number two to the Star Wars one. So you're talking about iconic products, which are also formidable commercial entities. Where do you see the James Bond franchise uh, going? Well, wherever they can derive profit, I think. I mean, I have to say I don't enjoy the modern films very much. I watch them in order because I give lectures on James Bond. Um, I think they're 
too violent. I think they've rather lost their lost their way, and they were changed. I think very much to match the Jason Bourne films. I don't think it worked terribly well. Um, but I don't know. I mean, as long as they can make money, they will continue going. But they are formidably expensive to make, so that this is, is very much a matter of the bottom line. And there is nothing wrong with that. Um, I think too many cultural commentators scorn um, uh, cultural products that can be actually highly lucrative, uh, and that's that's foolish. Um, so I, you know, I wish them well. Uh, I would like it if there was a higher level of. Uh, skill in the dialogue, ability in the characterization and humor. But these films are not made for me. And, it's, it's, and I don't think it helps uh, for people to, uh, you know, to be dyspeptic about them. If you wanted people to take one thing away from our discussion, what would it be? That it is well worth people's while to treat popular culture seriously and don't allow it to go to the cultural critics who tend to dress it all up in theory, take the fun away, misunderstand the market and pose with enormous condescension. Try and find um, a historian or a commentator who is able to write about it with engagement and sympathy without being stuck in, in theory. Upon that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you very much.